It is the 3rd of June, and welcome to the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a, a weekly live roundtable discussion during the growing season for commercial vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. We broadcast live via Zoom at 12.30 Eastern Time, 11.30 Central Time, every Wednesday from the first week of May to the first week of September. I'm one of your hosts today, Ben Phillips from Michigan State University Extension. Co-hosting with me today is Matt Kleinhens from Ohio State University, uh, and Mike Reinke is also from MSU, and he's our Zoom engineer. Uh, before we go on, I just wanted to acknowledge where we find ourselves in this moment. States are relaxing stay-at-home orders during a global pandemic under pressure to restart the economy. Simultaneously, we stand at the precipice of a national civil rights movement honoring and seeking justice for victims of racial inequality built upon over 400 years, both potentially destabilizing regional markets, just as Midwestern vegetable growers are fixing to re-enter them for the season. Now, this show does feature four white guys, and I'm not calling us to reckon with that on a live show. But uh, I will encourage um, everyone who gets an opportunity to listen to this live or later that you take some time this week just to take stock of your feelings and experiences with race and sit with that discomfort if you feel it and try to level up to be the best human you can be. Take some vulnerability to allow yourself to be challenged on these mental exercises and it's difficult incremental work to recognize blind spots in thinking and action but you're champions and I think you can do it. So Matt uh, what are we talking about today? Um well said, well said, Ben, and, and thank you for that uh, very, very important reminder of the context where we find ourselves today, which, um, you know, is obviously a part of much, a small part of a much larger whole. Today, we're talking about hoop house or, or high tunnel nutrient management. And we have two excellent guests with us to help us lead us through this conversation. And I know that we'll uh, probably spark questions and interest in the topic that will extend beyond today's session. So I do encourage you to follow up with anyone. Uh, on the call today, our co-hosts and certainly our and our uh, certainly our guests. Our guests include Judson Reed. Judson Reed is an extension vegetable specialist at Cornell University. Uh, he focuses on cultural practices, small farm operations, and season extension techniques. And of course, the latter definitely includes high tunnel, the use of high tunnels. Our second guest is David Van Eckhout. He is with Good Acre Food Hub in St. Paul, Minnesota, and as the Good Acres Grower Support Specialist. David combines experience, his experience in farming and in business to help their network of farmers be sustainable both financially and in the field, including through developing crop recommendations and food safety protocols. So all of the topics and the expertise represented in these, in these two gentlemen are, are front and center today. So for guests that are joining us, if you have questions for Judd or David, please use the Q&A box and, and uh, upvote other people's questions if you'd like, if you happen to want to champion a question that's posed by somebody else. And make sure to upvote your favorite questions as you go along as well. Our guests will tackle them, these questions, in the back half of the show, which follows this uh, st structured Q&A, which is uh, of we're about to start with. So, uh, Judd, if it's, uh, if it's okay, I'd like to uh, invite you to take the first crack at, at one of our questions. And questions speak to the this the question speaks to the concepts um, that are used in developing a really solid, really effective high tunnel hoop house nutrient management plan. As you know, Judd, you've been doing a lot of excellent work in this area, including in the, in the container aspect. But we can use a number of different philosophies or or um, approaches to you know nutrient management and high tunnels. Looking specifically at greenhouse hydroponic systems and, and at open, open field soil-based systems, high tunnels seem to bridge these two. These two. So which, which aspects of each of those do you think are most appropriate for a, a person uh, as they seriously consider their high tunnel nutrient management plan? Yeah, thanks, Matt. And uh, um, also want to thank Ben for his, uh, his words there. The nation goes through a very difficult... Appreciate your thoughts there, Ben. So to... To get to Matt's question, um, I I put down a few things from starting with the what I'm going to call the greenhouse world. Um, even though to me a high tunnel or a greenhouse or a high tunnel or a hoop house is a greenhouse, to me it's just a very it's a lower technology uh, greenhouse. But when I say greenhouse, I'm I'm meaning more hydroponic and higher technology. Um, so a few things that I jotted down to pull from 
that world, um, I think would benefit coupons growers. The first one is, is ventilation. So as a principle in greenhouse growing, uh, ventilation um, improves crop health by managing a couple of things. One is relative humidity and another is carbon dioxide levels. Uh, and so plants, um, as a reminder, use CO2, carbon dioxide, along with sunlight to photosynthesize and create sugars and fruit and all that sort of um, great stuff that we depend on. Um, so ventilation is probably is a key concept in greenhouses um, to re to manage those factors. And I think that's something that the hoop house grower, the lower technology technology grower, could oftentimes benefit from. That brings us to the second concept within uh, growing in greenhouses that would benefit hoop houses, which is temperature. And so temperature management um, is really one of the best things that we get out of modern greenhouses. Uh, for example, tomatoes, most common crop here in New York state that's grown under any type of protection. Our daytime temperature ideally in a, in a high technology greenhouse is 75 degrees Fahrenheit and a nighttime temperature of 65 degrees. So if hoop house growers can recognize that those are ideal temperatures, they can manage ventilation primarily to try to achieve those two temperatures. But we quickly run into one of the challenges of a hoop house or a high tunnel, which is that ventilation is being used to control temperature, but it's also affecting those first parameters I talked about of, of relative humidity and CO2 levels. So oftentimes what I see with low technology growers is that they don't vent. In other words, they keep the side rolled down. They keep vents closed because they're managing primarily for temperature. And that comes at a cost for really air quality for, uh, for the crop. So that's something I see that, that hoop house growers can take away from the greenhouse world. Uh, the next thing I put down here was pollination. Um, a modern glass greenhouse, hydroponic greenhouse, would never grow a fruiting crop such as tomatoes without pollination, without uh, particularly bumblebees to achieve that. Um, and I think, again, with the hoop house growers, since ventilation is being tied to temperature management, particularly in the spring, those sides roll down, we don't have wind coming in, we don't have natural pollinators coming in, and they could benefit from uh, putting in um, bumblebees. And really we, we owe the um, commercialization of bumblebees to the, to the hydroponic world. And that's, that's a place where we can benefit as well. I'll stop and see if there's other thoughts or questions. Those are just a couple of things that come to mind for me. David, you're, you've worked with a lot of growers and obviously farmed yourself. Uh, is there a set of principles um, or approaches that you find to be, you know, basically very key in setting up a nutrient management plan for a high tunnel operation? You know, um, thanks for uh, asking me to be here, you guys. And again, uh, Ben, I appreciate your words. Um, we're certainly uh, going through a lot of mixed emotions around the Twin Cities area. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that I harp on with people about, but um, nobody seems to really want to deal with this practice is every time I see someone with a rototiller in a high tunnel, I growl at them, you know, and I really think it's something, it's a protected space. And the key, the first part of your fertility management program should be not beating the hell out of your soil in there because it's never going to see a rain. It's never going to see the things that an outdoor soil would see to um, heal some of that damage. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a very special place inside under that cover. And I really want people to treat it that way. And that's something I, it, it's hard to convince people that really that time with a broad fork or some way that you could hand prepare that tunnel is really gonna yield benefits in the long term in terms of your fertility. Um, but slowly I keep putting that message out there. So I'll put it out here too. Roto no-no. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, I have a follow-up to that, to either one of you, if you feel like you know it. Um, do open rate, do, when you look at a, a guide for fertility for vegetables, uh, almost all the time, if it, there's a nutrient rate recommendation, it's on a per acre basis, and it's all based off of open field research. Does that directly apply to a hoop house, or should any modifications to that recommendation be taken? 
I think the, you know, the first piece there is to think about, can you really get away with, you know, providing all your pre-planned fertility um, at the beginning of the season and while well, your fertility for the whole season is pre-planned. Um, and I think, I think we do tend to use, it seems like standard practice with a lot of the growers I work with, that they are using field-based rates, um, you know, with a little bit of a tweak here or there, you know, say in your bed, your actual growing surface of your bed is your field, not including your walkways and um, other areas of your tunnel. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a starting point. It ends up being an ending point for most people too, unless they start to think about how can I get more fertility during the rest of the season. And for the most part, it seems to be a good starting point, um, especially on a very complicated farm that has a lot of other things going on in their operations. But I do think as you get more specialized farms, then they start to want to tweak some of that stuff and make it more effective. I haven't seen a lot of drawbacks of too much vegetative growth by providing all that fertility up front. Um, but I do think that as people start to think about how can I better support the veg the uh, reproductive time of the plants in there, you know, what can I do a little differently? And if I may, I'd like to uh, pose a follow up to the follow up. Um, <laughs> Before we get, I know that we have uh, we have a tentative plan to to focus on foliar applications and, and other um, other materials, and I know that we will want, we will want to get there. But you know what Judd and uh, David have have said so far really make me um, curious as to get their thoughts on you know the fundamental differences between a hydroponic system and a soil based system, outdoor soil based system, and you know the specific. Uh, changes that a grower would be looking to make over time in a high tunnel system, regardless of where they started. You know, many growers, I guess, could, could have started with a high tunnel, but for many, the high tunnel is a transition point from a greenhouse or from an open field situation. So they may be coming at it from two different sets of experiences. Um, let's just pick one, uh, David, Judd, if, uh, if you'd like, and, you know, like beginning from a high, from a field situation, the most likely change in your nutrient management plan will be blank, you know, as you enter a high tunnel, high tunnel production. Sure. Um, the most likely nutrient the change that I would see, I would have to say calcium. I have, I have several. Um, after calcium, I'd probably say phosphorus and then magnesium. But um, the issue I see, particularly here in New York, is that calcium levels build up in, in high tunnels very quickly because it comes in water. Uh, generally, our water has some level of dissolved calcium. And there's a couple different terms for that. Sometimes it's called calcium bicarbonate. Uh, sometimes people refer to it as alkalinity uh, or just total bicarbonates. But in the bottom line, what we're talking about is calcium, CA. And outside, uh, oftentimes we're adding calcium to the cropping system. Um, and inside, I find that generally um, we have too much of it. And so the first change I suggest growers look at is look at your fertility program and is there calcium in there? Uh, and do you need to remove that based on a soil test? The same could, the same applies for phosphorus, except the phosphorus is coming in not through our water, but through our other amendments, and it accumulates inside. The, the major difference with hydroponics is that hydroponics is every day you're starting from scratch. You're growing in a very small uh, piece of substrate. It might be, you know, say six inches by six inches, and you need to supply every single nutrient there at the appropriate rate that the crop wants it. Whereas it, in a soil-based system, you have a lot of wiggle room because there's large banks of nutrients there already. And you don't have that in hydroponics. Yeah, I, I tend to I tend to think of some of these management practices in terms of cooking, where for at plant or pre-plant uh, upfront nutrients, it's almost like baking. You're putting the mix together, and you're just kind of like going to let it go. But a lot of growers want to stir fry. Uh, you know, you can make changes on the fly when you're stir frying or pan frying. And that's where we get into some questions of fertigation and foliar sprays. So, uh, David, I wanted to ask you uh, this. What, what do you think is the best way for someone to balance some of that upfront nutrient management with those follow-ups with fertigation or, or foliar? What, what do you find in that, in that? Well, you know, I'll say, number one, that I'm working almost exclusively with organic growers. So it's a little different um, solutions to those problems for the organic folks. I mean, it's really only in the last four or five years that we've had some really decent, soluble um, 
fully soluble organic options. Um, so it's it's been kind of exciting and it's been a challenge to get growers to kind of nudge them into looking at some of those solutions. But, you know, we've done a fair amount of work with fertigation. Um, I have not worked with anyone who's doing foliar within a tunnel, you know, um, basically because of the, you know, whole reason you're in the tunnel in the first place. But I, I think there's an, you know, I think there's something to be said for that. And I would be interested to hear if Judd has any experience with that. But for fertigation, I think what we've really found is that, um, again, a lot of the products are going to have foliar rates. And so the fertigation rates are going to be significantly different than the foliar rates. I think we, we, the growers who kind of first started to dip their toe in that water, they just, they didn't see any sort of results. And that's because they're putting in at such low rates through fertigation that it's just not showing up anywhere. Well, we've really started to crank up some rates higher and higher and higher and have yet to see too high of rates, really. You know, I mean, we really, we had to increase rates, I would say, by about a factor of five or six before we really started to see results. But then um, we've been really happy with the results up here, you know, on the 45th uh, parallel. We're, we're always thinking about our season length and how can we maximize what we've got out there. And really what we're looking at is trying to maximize those last four weeks of the season. You know, if we could keep harvesting at the same level for two, three, four more weeks, that's really what we're trying to get the fertigation to achieve is to, and, and we've seen that we've seen that we can up, you know, the, the last four weeks of the season, we can up the yield 30, 35% through fertigation versus a crop that's not getting any fertigation, but just all pre-plant. And, and those, um, those fertigation ingredients are um, with nutrient analyses that are like 10 or less, or, or is it a higher analysis? Yeah, a lot absolutely. of the synthetic stuff or the chemical stuff is like, you know, 23 or oh, 46, you know, pretty high. To, yeah, we're lucky to hit five. You okay, know? yeah. So it's, yeah, it's it's really, we're talking three, two, three, three, mm-hmm. zero, three, you know, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, so you probably have a lot of room to 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 increase rates there. Yeah, whereas I think uh, for a conventional grower, they may experience some some burning effects if, they, if they're not careful. Yeah, so this is where hoop house growers can really learn from hydroponic growers, which is understanding parts per million of your of your nutrients and how many parts per million are you injecting. And I do think there's there's advantages to looking at a pounds per acre approach, and there's advantages to looking at a parts per million approach too. But as you move towards more precision application, uh, knowing your parts per million is is very important. And then it doesn't matter if you've got a five percent material or or a 46% material of say nitrogen. What matters is what's the ratio of that going out in your fertigation system. Um, and so that's something that the hoop house growers can really take from the greenhouse world is beginning to understand injection rates and what, what levels of uh, PPM you're getting on these things. Um, foliar, I'll, I'll, real quick on foliar feeding. And I, I want to note that both Matt and Ben have a tremendous amount of experience here. David and I are the guests, but uh, those guys, these Folks also know quite a bit about what we're talking about. And I appreciate their point of view. Foliar feeding, in my experience, generally is a corrective action, not a plan to uh, move your nutrients into, into the crop, particularly what we call macro or secondary nutrients, uh, which are needed in hundreds of pounds per acre. Uh, you just can't force that amount of material through the, um, through the foliage. But say, take a micronutrient such as manganese, MN, um, which there may be enough of it in the soil, but due to pH conditions, the plant might not be taking it up. Tiny, tiny applications of that, again, a, a part per million approach, foliar can solve that um, immediate problem of a deficiency in manganese. The root cause of the problem is generally pH in soils, which again is tied to calcium, and that's constricting the manganese is, that is there. So that's my experience with foliar feeding is generally a corrective action and generally on a micronutrient, although magnesium and G, um, which is, we call a secondary nutrient, there are situations where growers will apply that foliar as well to some benefit. Then obviously we need, um, and others, uh, we need uh, 10 of these sessions <laughs> to cover some of these topics, you know, uh, completely adequately. I know that we're, we're getting some, I think, true nuggets today. I'm, I'm trying to keep track of uh, as many of them as I can for our wrap up. But um, 
you know, both David and Judd have uh, touched on something really important in the fertigation aspect. And I know that we're going to move on to um, avoiding some of the problems that uh, perhaps, you know, David and, and Judd have alluded to, especially with respect to soil quality. Um, but as we do that, you know, to me, it's um, nearly impossible. And I think for, for others who would concur here, it's, it's essentially impossible to separate fertility programs with irrigation programs. And, uh, you know, the soil moisture, the root zone moisture it, and its effect on, on the nutrient management plan and, the, uh, you know, the, the efficacy of that. And, of course, the quality of that water, the timing of the application of that water and the use of water, as we've been discussing here the last couple of minutes, as a way to deliver nutrients directly to the root zone, as opposed to dry granular material that's put in beforehand and so on. Um, you know, this is uh, this is a. I think a perspective that I personally would like to learn more from the guests about, and certainly from our, from our listeners on if they're approaching their irrigation and their fertility, like as if they're separate or do they really approach as if they're a cohesive program designed to set up the soil chemistry as the crop would want it to be much like can be done in a hydroponic situation, which does not have that soil as the intermediary, if you will, like Judd was mentioning, it's uh the, the solid medium in a hydroponic situation is used for other reasons other than to, uh, than, the, than the soil is in a high tunnel. Any any thoughts on that? The linkage of the height of the uh, of the watering, uh, the irrigation, and, and the fertility. I mean, I think the growers that I work with, it's unfortunately it's still uh, two separate things. You know, it's uh, irrigation is is regularly scheduled, and fertility is hopefully regularly scheduled, but not necessarily. Um, I think that's kind of been the way on some of these really diverse farms that they can handle it. Um, I think if we, if we look at a farm that's really heavily into tunnels and tomatoes, then I, then that's where I see that change, you know, so a diversified, say a CSA farm, they're, they're lucky to just keep a good schedule of watering, you know, um, and then think about their fertility if they see a problem. I would say that's probably one of the divides between organic growers and conventional growers and and so the the conventional grower the concept is, is built upon inexpensive soluble immediately available nutrients that go through the drip system as david pointed out a few minutes ago th- those types of materials are are just now coming into organic um, production uh, the principle is the same uh, but that's where I see the difference, Matt. It's uh, conventional growers have always based their decisions on the knowledge that if there is a, that they can make immediate short correction, short-term corrections throughout the season with soluble materials. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. It may also break down along soil type lines to yeah. make corrections in a clay soil is an entirely different matter than in a sandy soil. Um, so, you know, you'll, you keep adding on the layers and you, and you realize that uh, nutrient management plans are probably highly personalized at some level. Um, they are. It, well, I'll point out a quick weakness here too, which is that it's for outdoor production. Uh, but if you are entirely dependent on fertigation for your nutrients, uh, what happens if you have repeated rain and you really can't and should not be irrigating? Now you're stuck. Your plants don't have any nutrition, right. and you're not uh, you're not able to irrigate. So there's a weakness there too. I want to point that out. So, um, Judd, I wanted to ask you a, a question. Uh, I know this is a this might be a hill that 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 you fight and die on because every time I see you, you talk a little bit about this somehow, and it's about pH creep, about pH creep in in long term tunnels and in particular tomatoes, but it doesn't have to be just a tomato house, but uh, perhaps related to um, not changing the poly or or not letting rain come in when changing the poly. Um, uh, we're not incorporating cover crops. So there's probably a number of reasons, but what uh, what do you see as the most practical ways a grower can avoid pH creep in their hoop house soils uh, over you know that lower that can lower yields over time? Yeah, I'll t- I'll, I'm going to try to be quick because I'm watching the clock here, Ben. But the what the practical things people can do first thing you do need to do is soil test, find out what that pH is. I would suggest the value of that hoop house is enough that you might want to do one in the spring and one in the fall. Um, um, next you could apply sulfur on an annual basis 
Um, elemental sulfur to the soil. I think that's probably at this point a standard operating procedure for many of the people that I work with here in New York. Um, next, I think this is a, a greenhouse practice that hoop house growers can benefit from, and that's acidifying your irrigation water if it needs it. So now you need a water test to find out your pH and alkalinity of your water. And using that injector, you can drop the pH and calcium in your irrigation water. Organic growers are able to use citric acid. Conventional growers uh, have two or three they can use. Um, sulfuric acid, phosphoric acid would be the most common. We're talking about minute amounts of those acids. Any one of those that I mentioned, you're talking about ounces per hundreds of gallons, but that keeps the root zone pH where it needs to be, which helps nutrient uptake of all the other nutrients. And then finally, uh, Ben, I think removing that plastic, that's another thing we have to remember is that the quality of light coming through that plastic degrades over time. Farmers are always trying to save money, and that means making things last for a very long time. But making your hoop house plastic last beyond what its intended life, it, what you're doing is reducing the quality of light that's coming in. You're reducing yields. You're delaying harvests. So every three years, I would suggest that plastic comes off, and as much precipitation that you can allow to move through the root zone, that's also going to help with your pH. Yeah, I would just plus one on that as far as acidifying that irrigation water. I mean, I think especially in an organic system where these uh, soluble materials that are available now are expensive, mm -hmm. you're, you're kind of throwing your money away if you're not looking at the pH of your water at the same time. Ah, uh, mm -hmm. great point. So, Matt, do you think we got time for, for, for one more question? Always more questions. Whether or not we'll have more time. No, I, I, I certainly don't want to cut into the, you know, to the Q&A portion. But um, to me, this the conversation has been just super informative. Um, I jotted down a few notes, you know, protect the soil. Obviously, it's a huge investment. Test the soil, test the water, test the tissue. Um, and that water is the irrigation water. You may need to acidify the water. Um, look for interactions. Judd was talking about interactions among nutrients. Um, and be, you know, be aware of, of uh, how they can compete, for example. Um, uh, foliar, as a, as a principle, if you will, uh, we heard that foliar is a, foliar approach is a, is a corrective one. Uh, I would concur there. Difficult to get all the crops needs met through foliar applications, but it can be, you know, specific targeted applications can be very useful. And then just be willing to test and modify your program. I mean, test it, really put it through its paces. Um, you know, the growers understandably get very, um, very, uh, I guess, settled with their approach if it seems to be working. And no one is here to doubt that. But um, every once in a while, get a fresh, take a fresh look at it and maybe invite somebody else to take a fresh look at it and ask where it might, uh, might be improved, um, if only in its efficiency. Like David was just saying, you know, don't invest in product A if not investing in product B because really A really needs B to, to function well. That's some of, some of what I heard. Yeah. So you want to take us out then to, um, to close it out, to go to the Q&A? Sure. I, we really appreciate people's attention and participation uh, in, this, in this discussion. And we're going to transi transition excuse me, from the Q&A that you just heard to a round Q&A involving um, the guests directly addressing your questions that you can submit in the chat box. And Michael, our engineer, will forward us uh, forward us uh, those questions. All right. So uh, once again, thank you, Judson and David, uh, for joining us today. I would like to give an announcement for what's coming next week. So on tap for next week are uh, the do's and don'ts of submitting a sample and reading the results. So a natural tie-in to to some hoop house management there, sending in some some samples. Uh, you can tune in at the same time, same place glveg.net slash listen at 12.30 Eastern Time, 11.30 Central Time. Uh, and this episode is supported by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. And today's episode in particular by a company who sent me some ad copy uh, called Half-Baked High Tunnels. So the long peaked roof that runs along a Gothic hoop house like a spine is based on an architectural uh, style dating back to the Middle Ages. Now, Half-Baked High Tunnels is specializing in bringing other historic architectural styles to hoop house designs, all faithfully replicated to scale with industry standard galvanized steel conduit and UV filtering polyethylene film. 
Send them half of your money now, and they will send you the plans for any of their prefab kits, including the Sistine Chapel, the Sydney Opera House, the Taj Mahal, Stonehenge, the Citadel of Machu Picchu, and Epcot Center's Spaceship Earth, the big golf ball. Uh, if you just have one huge grafted indeterminate tomato, they, um, they have a Washington Monument model. Uh, if you require a movable tunnel, they uh, have a transcontinental railroad model. Uh, so don't just settle for the enhanced snow shedding ability of a Gothic-style hoop house. Half-Baked High Tunnels has you covered with plans for an entire 40 acres of famous works of architecture with automated zone heating and venting systems and dual-layer inflatable plastic film. Call for a consultation today. All right. Wow. They've got a lot going on. I didn't know we had a sponsor. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every once in a while, we'll get some, we'll get some sponsors. Um, and uh, so now we're going to go to the live Q&A portion of the show. Of the show. So for those of you who are online, uh, the Zoom watching with us right now, you have three options for participating live. You can put questions in the Q&A box, and some have already done so. Um, you can upvote those questions, and uh, you can also use the chat box to add some commentary if you would like. Finally, if you, um, if you want to speak up or if we want to talk to you for some clarification, uh, we can unmute you, um, or you can raise your hand which should be one of the buttons you have around the bottom there. And that will tell us that you want to speak up at the, at the end, once we clear the questions that we can see online, we'll move to anybody who might be over the phone uh, because um, on the phone, you can't see what questions are coming. So we'll just wait until all the questions have happened. And if yours wasn't answered, then we'll ask you to push star nine, which will basically raise your hand for us here on the screen. And we can tell that you want to say something and we can unmute you then. So I'm going to go to the Q&A here. Uh, one, the first question is, is there a good resource for learning how to use injectors to get the desired parts per million of different nutrients? Going to offer one. Just um, I know that there are some excellent resources out there for those that have access to the Internet. Um, the Extension Network nationally, um, you know, whether it be your state or, or another state, um, can have some fantastic irrigation-related uh, resources or fertigation-related resources. One of them that comes to mind um, is Knott's Handbook for Vegetable Growers. Um, some of you who know me know that that's a, a recommendation, a book that I recommend to, to that many people have on their shelf. It's a handbook that's essentially about 500 pages of tables and charts with very little text. Um, and those tables and charts are very practical and um, applicable at nearly every scale of operation. And I believe that in the uh, fertility section and in the irrigation section, there will be some guides in, in that handbook on uh, to, to address that specific question. But I also um, am aware of other resources in the extension domain um, that will address some of the same. And by the way, that's not K-N-O-T-T-S. Yeah, I'm... Uh, I'll, I just wanted to uh, shout, shower Judd with some um, with some praise here, and that you mentioned PPM and not just EC. Because I think if if what I hear growers um, discussing sometimes when they're measuring water for fertility is EC, which really doesn't give you the full picture. It just tells you if there's salt in it, if there's some electrical conductivity, which many things can you know generate a hit for, but it doesn't give you any detail on the ratios or anything of, of N to MG or anything like that. Um, it's just sort of a general, if you know, if like, if you know you have a baseline EC and then you fertigate and you measure it from there, then you have some idea of, okay, well, yeah, it's in the water now. So I, I can tell, but um, parts per million does refer to specific nutrients. And so um, a few, one resource to get um, information on the desired PPM is just sending in a sample for that first time because the whatever lab you send it to will frequently pair that result back to you with the recommendations for what's too low, what's normal, and what's too high. Um, that's, one way to, that's one way to do it, but it's not comprehensive. Um, can you guys think of other places where you can get the desired PPM recommendations? Well, conventional greenhouse fertilizers have it on the back of the bag. Uh, they have a they have a, uh, a table. Mm -hmm. So there is there is a calculation. You, you can look at what's my injection rate versus what's my uh, 
um, the percentage of any given nutrient within the material I'm putting in the stock bucket. Um, and that's the sort of thing um, you do in a college classroom to pass a test. And then once you've passed that test, you use a table from then on. And if it has, you know, 1% nitrogen, 2%, 3%, and then you have your injection rate and it gives you your PPM. And so you, there's got to be t- there's tables in knots and tables on the back of fertilizer bags. And uh, you can do a Google search and it would, it would generate a table for you in a second. Um, just look at PPM. Generally, people are looking at parts per million nitrogen, but you're right, Ben, it applies to everything. And particularly in the case of, of growing tomatoes, you want to know what is your parts per million, uh, particularly potassium, in relation to nitrogen. That's very important uh, to know if you're injecting that material. I'll throw another resource out there that I think is outstanding. Uh, it's borrowing from the greenhouse world, but the Ontario Ministry for Food and Agriculture, OMAF, their greenhouse cultural guide, you do have to pay for it. It's a print resource. You can look that up on the internet, but the OMAF uh, greenhouse uh, cultural guide for vegetable crops would also have those tables and also walk you through the calculations if you want to, if you want actually want to push the pencil on anything. Great. Thanks. Uh, okay. Uh, next question is, are magnesium issues due to competition with potassium from high levels uh, of organic amendments or, or pH? So looking for an answer to if it's caused by one of those three things or perhaps a combination. And by magnesium issues, I'm thinking they mean deficiencies. Yeah. Well, my quick answer is yes. It's a, it could be any one of those three um, and other things as well. Um, more common is for magnesium levels to be very high and probably inhibit potassium uptake than the other way around. Um, but yes, pH, calcium, and potassium all could all could uh, interfere with magnesium uptake. Um, I, I'm pretty sure Matt has some knowledge on this subject matter to you. Well, I definitely want to hear from David. I guess I, I would just echo what Judd has said, that um, the magnesium-potassium um, distinction is very, very important, and the comp- potential competition in addition there is, is uh, crucial when you consider, for example, blotchy ripening in tomatoes and uh, uh, the, the potassium deficiency being a potential underlying cause for that. And where would the potassium deficiency come from? It could be, could be excess magnesium. So, um, you know, just, we just want to be mindful uh, more or less at all times that there are ideal ratios of nutrients, macro, micro, um, for sure within the macro group and within the micro group. And more is definitely not always better. Um, secondly, that um, like we've said before, that has been said before, the greenhouse um, uh, world gives us a lot of excellent recommendations to build on. But again, they're in a situation soil less where adjustments can be made very quickly. Whereas in the soil-based high tunnel production system, there is a lag, there is often a lag phase between a correction that you may want to make through your fertigation or what have you, and then the result or the outcome. Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, just, just uh, <clears throat> making sure you have your baseline. So, you know, when something's out of whack, it's so critical with some of this stuff to, you know, have your soil tests, have your tissue tests, um, I'd be curious, Matt and Judd, what you guys recommend for people as far as, you know, I, I recommend that people try and do some of that sampling before they see problems. And uh, I just, it seems like it's so difficult, especially because I'm working in organic systems to correct anything. Once you, if you see it, it's kind of too late to correct it in most organic situations. So I'd be curious what you guys recommend people do as far as any sort of testing regimen during the season. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll say, David, um, you're right. It's, it's a little, it's much harder to correct uh, deficiencies in an organic situation than conventional. There are some, potassium is a notable exception though, um, because potassium for organic growers, you have a material called uh, sulfate of potash, which is a zero, zero, I think it's 48, 48% potassium that's soluble. And it's, uh, it, uh, organic growers I work with will oftentimes see a very quick response to that material. I, I recommend it to conventional growers that are running into potassium deficiencies. It's, it's that good. Um, um, so the regimen on foliar testing, I think early on in the season, probably a, a two week um, sampling would be good. But uh, David, you alluded earlier to how busy farmers get if they're running a CSA and a, 
a dozen crops outside, um, that's probably there. The farmer's busyness is probably the number one constraint to getting those samples taken every couple of weeks. David, I think you've raised an excellent question and uh, made an excellent point multiple times throughout the conversation. I guess to to your most recent question, you know, uh, about the planning, uh, you know, the adjustments. I do agree that um, organic growers may have a higher bar, if you will, to clear because of the products that they're using and other approaches that they're using to get a quick turnaround, if you will, to take quick corrective action. So I do, I do acknowledge that. Uh, and what Judd has said is, I think, is spot on. Um, overall. Um, I guess I'll just put a shout out to record keeping, documenting well what the practices have been. Not always a fun thing to do or everyone's favorite thing to do, but documenting well, you know, what the program was during the season, looking at the, you know, having records of what the season um, produced and then asking, you know, when there is a bit of downtime, what adjustment may I, may I benefit from making before the season begins or as the season begins, whether that's considering a new amendment, a new rotation, um, a new product, a new rate, a new timing, a new placement, whatever the one of the four R's uh, adjustments in one or more of the four R's that guide our nutrient management plans uh, would be appropriate. Um, and, uh, and obviously going into that process, be mindful that quick corrections are going to be very, very difficult. Uh, except for the one that Judd mentioned, and maybe even some nitrogen uh, possibilities there. Okay, great. Um, there, there was actually a question we had. We thought we'd have time for, but we didn't. But it had had um, something to do with uh, your experiences on products like fish, seaweed, Chilean nitrate, and how they might be employed, and uh, particularly in organic systems. And I guess I, I'm not aware of the analysis on those or how soluble each one of those are. But I think most of them are are targeting a nitro, targeting nitrogen basically. Um, can any of you speak to that about any if any of those project products would work well for a faster sort of response in plants? I mean, I think Chilean nitrate is kind of a the your only real soluble nitrogen option in organic systems, and now it's 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 a little less restricted than it used to be, where you had to be careful how much of your fertility you were using to. Uh, get your numbers um, with that particular product. But, you know, fish, I really, it's just, uh, you know, everybody says their fish is soluble, but I have yet to see it. I, you know, I would never, ever put fish through a drip line, no matter how much they promised it was soluble, unless you want to rip out your drip lines and put in new ones. <laughs> I would, I would agree with David. I think the, um, the, well, my recommendation for organic growers is to save that Chilean nitrate, which I think is a 14.00, so it's 14%, I think, nitrogen. Save that to later in the season. And this is where foliar testing comes in, is that generally your organic nitrogen is going to be in a bulk form, alfalfa meal, soy meal, et cetera, that obviously you don't inject that. You incorporate that pre-season. And when we do foliar sampling, we notice that in organic high tunnels, the nitrogen goes down, 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 down. and so. David was talking about extending that season towards the end, three or four weeks. And that in my mind is the opportunity for organic growers is to inject that, that 1400, that uh, Chilean nitrate late in the season after we've run out of the pre, the, the pre plant incorporated. And that's a good, good opportunity for organic growers. Hold on to it until you really need it in the end. Yeah. That's a great tip. Hey, ben, a great do we tip. have time for a quick question or, are we, or do we need to wrap up? No, we've got time. Okay. I was wondering if I could ask, you know, certainly ask David and, and, and uh, Judd, you know, we've tossed around hydroponic and field and, and organic and conventional. Um, what are your thoughts on an organic grower using resources like a table of, you know, ideal tissue test levels that were probably developed with a conventional program? Are they valid? Are they, are they appropriate? You know, does it matter how the crop achieves levels of tissue or in the soil or the farmer achieves, you know, levels in the tissue or soil? In other words, can an organic grower rely on some resources that are developed within a conventional route and vice versa? Can a conventional grower, you know, look at a, a resource that was developed under organic situations and make that transition effectively? Where, where could they, where would they, where would they be most, you know, be most effective in doing that? You know, I think that, um, 
The organic system being more based on being a biological system than the conventional one. I, I do think that you have to take everything with a grain of salt when you're using, you know, field recommendations out of a conventional guide, which is, you know, a common thing that every grower is doing because unfortunately those recommendations don't exist for, you know, certified organic ground that's been managed that way for 10 years or something. Um, but I, but I think that's true of any recommendation. I think all growers take recommendations with a grain of salt and kind of look at them, think about their soil types, think about what they've seen. You know, the, the grower's footprint on the land is always the best thing to base your decisions on, you know. And I, I think for organic growers, I think a lot of them take some of the macronutrient recommendations and dial them back a bit when they're working in an organic system, especially if there's cover crops in there, they're going to take maybe more credits than they would uh, in just a conventional system. But I, I, I think there's definitely a place for using those resources because they're honestly the only resources we have, you know, so I, I think people can use it, but using good judgment and good uh, farming skills to take, take what they want from it. David David said it very well there. Um, soil health is what unites all all farmers. is is a healthy uh, soil that's able to support good um, crop growth, and that's that's something every grower can get behind, regardless of your uh, what type of management system you have. Yeah, um, we got one more question in the Q and A, and it has to do with the acidification of irrigation water. We know that there are tools that can help someone take a sample with it so that they know the, the alkalinity of their soil or of their water already and then um, get a recommendation for injecting or adding different acids of different percentages. Uh, the one I'm thinking of is alk calc. Uh, I thought that was like a New Hampshire product. I don't recall exactly. It's like shared on a lot of extension sites. But um, notably, citric acid doesn't appear in, in that calculator uh, to make that an easy thing to, to figure out. And there's a couple of other resources out there, some different table forms that include, you know, some phosphoric acid that's 75%, sulfuric uh, 93, and nitric at 63. I'm looking at the University of Massachusetts website now that has a nice resource. It's a nice table. It tells you what you need to add per 100 gallons of water, I think. Yeah. But citric acid is just a bunch of NA, NA, NA across the table. <laughs> so um, I'm curious if you guys have, have seen of, or have heard or have crafted anything of, of your own uh, when it comes to using that product, which is probably more for organic growers. I don't, I mean, it just seems more for a conventional grower that there's other acids more readily available. So I don't know why they'd want to go for that one before organic growers there seems to be a hole in the data there do you guys have any ideas i i haven't come across anything i mean we really it's been test strips you know just uh, getting getting to the concentration you want and figuring out what test strips has been strips. the primary way that a lot of growers have been doing it okay yeah, so I, they're using like a stock tank that they're irrigating directly from instead of instead of dripping it into the line Either that or actually injecting, you know, a concentrated solution and, and then, you know, taking some of the water after the injection and testing that and kind of working it out. Okay. All right. Test strips for the win. What's the, um, what are they, what is the target of value for, for that? If they're looking at a test strip, do you know? Well. I guess it would be different depending on the test strip, right? Because a lot of them are color-based. Yeah. I mean, I think you're looking at something a little bit on the acidic side, you know. It depends how, you know, your soil and where your soil's at too, of course. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, we, we tend to be in the five, five to six range, I think, with trying to get the water down into that range for most of the soils we work with. Okay. Yeah. So I, you, I would add, you could use a digital meter as well. So digital meters for a little over a hundred dollars come with calibration solutions and they would do the same thing as a test strip, except you get a digital numeric value for what that looks like coming out the end of the hose and I agree with David that right now is our best resource Ben for, for citric acid is in a, uh, a post injection test and seeing if we're getting to that value that we want, which I agree down around six is probably good. But again, really we're looking at alkalinity as much as we are pH, um, which is again, a whole nother topic that we don't have time for. But I, I do want to point out that when we talk about acidifying the water, 
We're not trying to turn around that entire bank of soil inside of the high tunnel or the hoop house. That the water alone is not going to be able to do that. The water, what it's going to do is prevent any pH problems from getting worse and keep the root zone itself, um, particularly when it's moist, uh, in the zone that we want it to be pH-wise for nutrient uptake. Overall, managing the the pH and calcium in that bank of soil is going to require the other steps we talked about, Ben, of applying sulfur and removing plastic. Okay, great. So I guess I might uh, try to encapsulate this last question in an answer. Um, The recommendations for other types of acids per 100 gallons of water is something in the range of a quarter ounce to three quarters of an ounce of that acid in 100 gallons of water. Since we don't have like a hard and fast ounces per 100 gallons for citric acid, I would have to hazard a guess that if you stick between a quarter and three quarters of an ounce and then do a test, you can tweak it from there. But don't, you know, don't put in like four ounces and think I'll start here. I mean, like stick within what's common for other acids and then and then do a, a test with some meters or test strips after that. Yeah, real quick, Ben, that's been my experience is that it's really extremely close to uh, a lot of our, our other acid generally sulfuric acid is what we're using in conventional systems. And the citric acid rate is very similar. And it's good for you to put that within a ballpark for people. So they're not putting out too much. Yep. And always add more. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. (laughs) Start low. Uh, We had someone just, we're we're about to close this, but Ben Whirling came in uh, to the chat here and he shared a resource from ProMix, uh, the company that makes, um, well, ProMix, um, and they, they actually do have a table, very nice, succinct table in which they uh, they show um, a citric acid rate per 100 gallons of water at 1.78 ounces, so a little, a little higher. Uh, it's a lower percentage of active ingredient than the previous table I was looking at, so I think that accounts for the slightly higher rate. But yeah, as Judd said, ounces per 100 gallons, it's not much. Low, sing- low single-digit ounces. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Very low single-digit. Okay, well, um, once again, I really appreciate the time uh, that you both have taken out of your day, Judd and David, and uh, and Matt as well. Um, uh, I hope you will have a, a good rest of your week and that uh, you stay safe and and uh, stay positive. Same to you. Great to chat with everyone. David, it's the first time we've ever spoken, so it was fun to do this with you. I wish you folks success and uh, uh, peace and justice in Minnesota. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Nice to meet you, too. And nice to hear all the knowledgeable, uh, everybody on the call. Really great. Thanks for thanks for contributing very much. Thanks. Signing off.